So Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew say this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The residents in Lake Dalton, Wisconsin, understood exactly what Jesus was talking about there. When their houses, who they had put incredible amounts of money and effort and time in constructing, when the winds rose and the streams rose and washed away the banks of their house, what happens? It falls with a great crash. We kind of know what this is like, maybe even better than a lot of people in America. We live on the East Coast where hurricanes are a constant reminder of the power of water and the power of the storm. How many of you guys remember Sandy? Two years ago, Sandy comes and desolates the East Coast. Hundreds of people are dead from it. Fifteen states are affected. Ten million people are without power. Homes and amusement parks are washed into the ocean. All of those homes that were not built upon the solid ground are washed away, and they fall with a great crash. Maybe you've heard it said this way. Once upon a time, there were three little pigs. And the first little pig decided to build his house out of straw. And then one day, that big bad wolf came by, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew that house down. And that wolf had a nice bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich for breakfast that morning. And then that second pig, he came along, and he said, you know what, I'm going to be so much wiser than my, my cousin. I'm going to build my house out of sticks. Now that wolf came by that, that day, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew that stick house down, and he had a nice pork chalk lunch that day. And then there was that third pig, of course, and he decided to build his house out of brick. And that wolf came by, and he huffed, and he puffed, and he blew, and he blew, and he blew, and he could not make the house collapse. And so what does he do? He climbs up on the roof, and he tries to go down the chimney. Well, we all know how the story goes. That pig had a nice wolf filet for dinner that evening. It's the same story, just told in a different way. They're wise and they're foolish. Some choose to build their house on the rock. Some choose to build their house upon the sand. We all know what the wolf feels like. We all know what the winds crashing against our house and our lives feel like. It feels like chaos. It feels like uncertainty. It feels like anxiety and fear and worry welling up inside our hearts. Anybody been there? Anybody feel that before? Not knowing where the next paycheck's going to come from? Wondering how you're going to pay your mortgage? Wondering how you're going to pay the the car payment or or wondering how you're going to pay the car bill because your car just broke down. You have no idea how you're going to pay the $2,000 repair bill. Maybe you wake up in the morning one day and your husband tells you that he wants a divorce. The winds and the wolf are crashing against your house. You go to the doctor one day and he tells you that you have ALS. 
you have cancer. Or maybe even worse, that your child has cancer. I think of those little league world pitchers who who pitch and the ball gets hit over the fence and all of a sudden they break down in tears. You guys seen that? And they just break down mourning because in their little world, that is the storms of life beating against them. Maybe you're going to go home and you're going to see an eviction notice on your door. You guys know what it feels like? To have the winds beat against your life? To have the wolf barking at your door? You guys know what it feels like? It's a world full of uncertainty and chaos, and it follows us everywhere we go. And so what do we do when we live in this world of uncertainty? How do we interact? How do we navigate it? Well, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. It says, Jesus began by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, therefore, therefore is this word that basically in this one little word is summed up, because of everything I just said. It's kind of what the word therefore means. Because of everything that I have just said. What has he just said? He just concluded the Sermon on the Mount. Do you guys ever read the Sermon on the Mount before? I challenged you guys actually about two months ago to go home and read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. Some of Jesus' most profound teachings. I will challenge you again, if you've never read Matthew 5 through 7, go home today and read Matthew 5 through 7. I'm going to highlight a few things that he says here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, he says. And so what does he say? He says, blessed are those who mourn. Does that seem odd to anybody? Blessed are those who mourn. You know, what he's trying to say here is that not just generic mourning or lamenting over life situation, but realizing that we all have this problem, this problem of sin and death and decay in our own hearts and in our own lives, and that should cause us to mourn. How many of you guys mourn over the sin in your life? Man, we don't do it very often, do we? Not many of us do it. We look at our lives and we're like, I'm fine. But Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. Look at your life. Look at the sin and say, this is not right, God. I lament. I grieve this sin in my life. And he promises, you will be comforted. He says to be a person of simple integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Live your life with simple integrity. He says to love your enemy. And to pray for those who persecute you. Man, that's hard, right? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the people who, who you dislike. He says that materialism and greed are incredible evils in our world, and so do not put your trust in them. Man, that's a that's a message in itself that should be preached, right? He says, don't worry about having enough because God is a great provider. That's hard. But he says, everyone who hears these words, but not simply hears them, but does them, is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. And so let me highlight and emphasize one of the phrases. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice. You know, there is a disease going around American culture, Christian culture in particular. Um, I'm going to call it passive Christianity. 
It's a disease, really. You know, when Jesus told us to love our enemy, he didn't say, why don't you go and form a committee to talk about what it would look like to love your enemy? He didn't say, why don't you go and start a blog about what it looks like to love your enemy? He he didn't say, go and write a book about what it looks like. Hey, get a bunch of friends together and watch a commentary about what it looks like to love your enemy. That's not what he said. He said, love your enemy. Get your hands dirty. Get out in the world. Rub shoulders with your enemies. Love your enemies. He expected his disciples to go out to get their hands dirty and begin to love their enemies Man, we're good at talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus, but how many of us are actually doing it? So much in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, it says that faith without action is dead. That your faith, your trust in Jesus, if it is not accompanied by the action, the way you move your hands and your legs and your lips and your eyes, is dead. A couple of verses. 1 John Chapter 3, starting at verse 17, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Or consider the book of James. Uh Chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then the classic section, James uh, 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one says, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. You know, being anchored in the rock is firmly a principle of obedience to God. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to the words and do the words. It's obedience. And so have you ever thought about why we obey? Why do we obey God? Why do we obey anybody? You know, I I think of my wedding, which uh, took place uh, just over 10 years ago to my lovely bride, Emily. And we made these promises to each other. They're called vows. But when we interact with each other on a daily basis, we're not, we don't have the list of vows on our, on our wall and say, okay, we are going to obey these list of rules that we made. We obey the love relationship that we have. The love guides us. The love that we have for one another navigates us. Because honestly, I, I can't even really tell you what those vows were. <laughs> not verbatim anyway. But there is an essence of love that drives us and navigates us to interact with one another. And unfortunately, we don't do it well all the times. But that is what is guiding us, not a list of rules. God never called his people to obey a list of rules. 
Even all 613 commandments in the Old Testament, God never said, obey these 613 commands. He rather said, enter into a love relationship with me. And you will find yourself that you are doing what the law requires. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will obey me. He says it twice more in the following chapter. If you love me, then you will obey me. It is truly a love relationship, not only that we love God, but that he loves us. And oh my goodness, he loves us. It's not like a child who who keeps loving his father even though his father is negligent. It's not like a little child who keeps loving his father even though his father is absent. No, the love God showers on us is infinitely greater, infinitely more imaginable and mysterious than we could ever fathom. We give God our love, and in return, he showers us with his love. Restoration Church, God loves you. God loves you. In a more mysterious, unfathomable way than you could ever imagine, God loves you. I'm going to keep saying this until I hear some amens out there, because God loves you. God loves you. And we believe that God loves us. When we believe that God loves us, then we also believe that he is trustworthy. And he is worthy of our obedience. That he actually cares more for us than we care for ourselves. There comes a time when we have to stop talking about trust. There comes a time when we have to stop just having the conversation and actually start doing when the passive Christianity has to become the active Christianity, when our trust has to grow hands and feet and, and form our lives and change our lives and begin to, to change the way we behave. There comes a time when the truth that God loves us must make us view him as trustworthy. And all of who we are and all of what we have will then be formed by that trust. It's going to make, make us loosen our grip on our money and our time and our decisions and our, our talents, like Brian had just said. It's going to cause us to be more generous. The deeper you go into trust relationship and a love relationship with God, the natural byproduct is a loosened grip on the control over your own life. You guys ever experienced that? Anybody who's followed Jesus for a long time, you realize that over the years, you just, you care less and less for stuff. You care more and more for people. Shifting your dependency off of yourself and on to God, that is what trust is all about. And saying, God, I can't do this anymore. I've tried it my own way. It hasn't worked out too well. And so, God, I'm going to place my control over into your hands. I'm going to trust you with my life. Shifting your dependency off of yourself and on to God. Trusting in God means giving up your control. It means giving your life away. And how many of you hear that phrase and you're like, holy, that's scary. And that's a fearful place to be, not in control. And for most people, they have to realize several times before it sinks in that when I place control of my life in my own hands, I am standing on a foundation of sand. 
who has experienced that. Man, you try to do things your own way, and all of a sudden, the storms of life, the chaos, the uncertainty, the anxiety, the fear, washes the foundation right under your feet, and you find yourself fallen and crashed and burned, and you have no idea where to go. Hope seems that it is lost. But rather, we are told to trust in God, for he is a firm foundation. He is the foundation that we are to build our lives upon. And when the storms of life rage and the streams rise and they beat against our house, which is ourself, we will stand. You know, the Psalms are some of the most honest scriptures. If you guys have ever read through the Psalms, you realize that they're just full of brutal honesty about how difficult life can be. They're full of brutal honesty about the fears and the anxiety and the worry that happens just in the natural human life, right? You walk through this life, and a natural byproduct of walking in this life is fear and anxiety. And the Psalms are brutally honest about that. They do not shy away from that reality. And there's one genre of psalm in particular. It's called a mictum. The genre is a mictum. There are only six psalms that are classified as mictums. But a mictum was a psalm that was written into stone. Now, the first question we need to ask is, why was it written into stone? Because papyri was available. Goatskin was available. What is it about these psalms that the author, who is primarily David, felt that he needed to inscribe them into stone? He said, papyri, that's not going to do. Goatskin, that's not going to do. These need to be inscribed. And I think the book of Job gives us a little bit of understanding. If you guys know the story of Job, Job was the most righteous man that had ever lived in his time. He was with, not without sin, but he sinned very little. He was blessed beyond anybody in all of the East. He had ten sons and seven daughters, and he had more cattle and sheep than he knew what to do with. He had huge houses and tents. He was the richest man in all the land. His life was good. He was blessed and he was privileged. And all of a sudden, one day, raiders came and destroyed his land and his produce. They kidnapped his cattle. They stole his cattle. A fire was broken out in the tent where all of his sons and daughters were eating. And it collapsed on top of them and all 17 of his children died in a single day. He lost everything that the world tells us to put our trust in. His money, his security, his family. Everything was wiped away. I mean, talk about the rain falling and the streams rising, right? Talk about the wolf barking at your door. Job knew it better than anybody. Chaos, uncertainty, fear, and anxiety. He sat there for seven days cutting himself because also boils broke out all over his skin. And to ease the pain, he took shards of pottery and started scraping his skin away. He shaved his head and he sat there in dust and ashes wearing sackcloth, really itchy garments as a sign of mourning. And he was wondering where the love of God was. He wanted an audience with God. He said it was unjust. But it was while in the anguish and the pain, it was in the chaos and the uncertainty and the fear and the anxiety that he could not let this one profound realization go. And I pick up in Job 19. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, 
no, 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 not a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead. No, that won't even do, that they were engraved in a rock forever. A mictum. These words that I'm about to speak out of my mouth, they must be engraved in a rock forever because the scroll will fade. The scroll can be burned. The iron will rust. These words must be preserved for all time. And what are the words? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. In the midst of horror, Job came to this realization that paper will not hold this truth. And so it must be inscribed into a rock because this truth must anchor my life. And so what are the six victims about? God is trustworthy. The essence, the theme of all six victims in the psalm, when life sucks, I can have confidence in God who proves himself faithful. When my enemies attack me, I have a safe refuge. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, the psalmist says. When storms of life prevail, I have a shelter from the storm. When chaos of sinful choices overwhelm me, God is victorious. Amen? If you want to read them yourself, Psalm 16 and Psalm 56 through 60. Take a look. Because, you know, trust is really hard to come by when we try to do it ourselves, when we trust in ourselves, when we trust in these material things. Because what? Trust in money. Trust in your cash. Trust in your wallet. Man, that can get lost so easily. That can get stolen. The money can get burned. Banks can get robbed. Trust in the stock market. Man, you have no idea what's going to happen in the worldwide economy tomorrow. Trust in your popularity. What happens when you move to the next town and all of a sudden you're the low man on the totem pole? Trust in your job. Well, you know what? Tomorrow you might not have it. Trust in a person. Eventually that person is going to die. Trust in your fame. Well, you know what? There's going to be this next young star coming up to steal your limelight. Trust in your talents. They are going to dull. Trust in your home. Well, we all know that hurricanes can very easily sweep them away into the ocean. Trust in your beauty and in your youth. They will fade with age. Nothing, my friends, that changes, nothing that is temporal is worthy of our trust. But the beautiful truth is that God is unmovable. God is unshakable. God does not change like shifting shadows. God alone is worthy of our trust because he is today. He is constant yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He is the only faithful, consistent thing. He is the only foundation that is worthy of our trust. He's the only foundation that is worthy of us to build our lives upon. So when the world's winds and rain rise and beat against our house. And what Jesus says, it's going to happen. Jesus isn't saying if the storms come. He's saying when the storms come. Trusting in Jesus doesn't protect you from the winds and the rain and the wolf. It simply gives you a foundation to stand upon that will not falter when they come. You will have a firm foundation that will not be destroyed 
when the chaos and the uncertainty and the anxiety rises. There's a story that I want to discuss briefly in the Gospel of Matthew. It comes out of Matthew 19. It's a story that probably many of you hear. It's an example of a man who chooses to build his life on the things of the world rather than on God. You guys may know this story. It's uh, classified typically as the story of the rich young ruler. I'm going to start in uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. The words will be on the screen. It says, Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus replies, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Well, which ones? The man inquired. And Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all these I have kept, the young man. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Because he had great wealth. So there's this man with great power, with authority, he had incredible wealth, and he was also young. Notice that these are all of the things that America tells us that we should strive after. These are all the things that we long for in life, typically. This man who is young and probably attractive and wealthy, and he has a lot of power and authority. He comes to Jesus looking for eternal life, it says. Now, eternal life in the scripture is not something that begins when you die. It begins right now as you place your trust in Jesus Christ. The very life of heaven gets pulled from heaven, and it gets sucked into our realm, and all of a sudden it invades your heart, and invades your mind, and invades your soul, and invades your life, and all of a sudden you become this regenerated person. The life of heaven, eternal life begins now, and it transcends from now into eternity. And so he says, really, I can experience the life of heaven right now? I can experience new life. I can be regenerated. I can find forgiveness for my sins. Really, how? How do I achieve this? And Jesus says, well, follow the commandments. And the man responds, well, Jesus, man, I've worked hard my whole life. I know how to get what I want. I've kept every commandment since I was a youth. But I'm still missing something. I'm still apathetic. I still haven't found this life. And the reason there was no life in following the law was because so many were obedient to the rules of the law, the 613 rules, that they weren't obedient to God. They were obedient to the rules, the list on the wall, but they were not in a love relationship with their creator. And so Jesus, and I can only imagine with a smile, he says, well, you know, if you want to be perfect... Now, let's stop here for a moment. This word perfect, which in the Greek word is teleos, it doesn't mean perfection in the way that we think of it. It doesn't mean the absence of flaws or the absence of sin. It means completion. If you want to be complete, if you want to find fulfillment, if you want to find purpose, if you want to be full of joy, if you want that eternal 
life within you. If you want to be the person God made you to be, then go, he says. Get rid of your wealth, love your community, and follow me. Now, Jesus is not trading one set of rules for another. You have to understand that he's not trading one set of rules for another. He is asking the man to show him that he loves God by loving others. Show me that you want to be in a love relationship with God by the way you love others. Because you have to realize in Jesus' day, there were only two classes of people. There was the upper class and there was the lower class. And transitioning from the lower class to the upper class was incredibly difficult and very, very few people ever did it. The upper class consisted of 2% of the population where the lower class consisted of 98% of the population. But the 2% of the population, the upper class, still had to interact with the lower 98. It wasn't like you could go to the market and, and have a, a, an alleyway created for you that you could just go and not have to interact with the peasants or the beggars on the street. You're constantly being bombarded by the 98% of the lower class. They weren't isolated in this utopian bubble. And for this man, who is presumably Jewish, he's got to be thinking, man, I gave my 10%. I give my 10% of my resources. I give my tithe. I've done my duty. I follow the law. And so leave me alone. I don't need to give any more to the 98%. I've been generous with my 10%. I've done what is required of me. I've done my duty. Now leave me alone, you peasants. Jesus comments on this on Matthew 23, if you're interested. And so Jesus says, show me that you love me by loving your neighbor. This man was all about duty. Man, I've done my duty. I've done what is required of me. And Jesus says, show me that you love me by loving your neighbor. Now, in their day, if you wanted to help the poor, if you wanted to help the poor, you didn't go online and sponsor a compassion child and pay someone $38 a month to help the poor for you. In their day, if you wanted to feed the hungry, you didn't give money to the, the local homeless shelter and say, good luck feeding the hungry. If you wanted to clothe the naked, you did not give your clothes away to the local goodwill. If you wanted to feed the hungry, you took some bread and you took some soup and you took some food and you went to where the hungry were. If you wanted to clothe the naked, you took your extra cloak and you went to where the naked were. You changed your associations. You started rubbing shoulders with that lower 98%. You, you did away with your duty and you said, I'm going to learn to be generous. I'm going to learn to love God by loving others. You touched the poor. You rubbed shoulders with those who were hurting. You set aside your comfort and your privilege and your power and you humbled yourselves. And so Jesus is saying to this man, you have no reason to trust me for food and for clothing. Right? The source of fear and anxiety and frustration and chaos and uncertainty that everybody feels because of a lack of funds, man, you, you don't fall into that category. You're too well off to fear. You're too well off to, to, to wonder where your next meal is going to come from. You're too well off to wonder where your next mortgage payment is going to come from. You have too much money. You are relying on the wrong things. 
You were immune to trust in me because you were too wealthy. And when the rich man heard this, he was sad, it says. And he went away because he had great wealth. Now, most people think he walked away sad because he had great wealth and the sacrifice that Jesus was asking was just, it was going to be too much. Man, I love this life of comfort and privilege and you're asking me to give that up. It's going to be really sad to leave that, to go into this life. But I want to suggest that he was sad not because he was going to give up his wealth, but because he decided to keep it. The rich young man was sad because he chose comfort. He was sad because he chose privilege. He was sad because he chose the life of wealth, not because he was going to lose it. The source of his sadness is not in his sacrifice, but in his wealth. It is in his position of power and privilege. Because the man took the path of obedience to the law and thought, shouldn't just doing this religion be enough? Shouldn't just giving away my 10% be enough? I thought there would be joy. I thought there would be purpose in that. But obedience is not an end in and of itself. That's not what Jesus is asking for, just rote obedience. Here's your 613 laws. Do those and you'll be fine. That's never what God had asked of his people. He always wanted what? A love relationship. Obedience to God is the byproduct of our love relationship. We become obedient when we fall in love with God. We choose to follow God more wholeheartedly when we fall in love with God. When we recognize that we are sinners and we mourn over that sin, we see that Jesus and God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And wow, I want to fall in love with that God. Now, God, show me the way. Let me walk. Let me be obedient because I love you. Obedience is not an end in and of itself. That is religion, my friends. And God has always said, I want a love relationship with my people. And so the rich young man came looking for life, and he came looking for purpose, and Jesus told him plainly where to find it. Man, get rid of the duty. Get rid of the religion. Be obedient out of your love, not out of the sake of obedience. Love your neighbor. Be generous with the goods that you have. Learn to love me in increasing measure, and you will find joy and fulfillment and happiness and eternal life are the byproduct. Jesus told him plainly where life could be found, but instead he decided to trust in his wealth. And because of it, he walked away sad. He decided to keep his money. He decided to keep his comfort. And he decided to be sad and limp through life apathetic. The result of all people who choose to trust in themselves is a sad existence because we are choosing to solidify our life on a foundation made of sand. And when the storms of life come crashing against us, and the, the winds beat against us, and the streams rise, and they wash away our foundation. We have no hope. We have nothing to stand on. But in love for God, and in increasing love for God, we find that we have a solid rock. There was one other time that the Jesus uh, and his disciples found themselves in the midst of a storm. It's actually in the next chapter. It's in chapter 8 of Matthew. 
It's a very brief section, and you probably all know this story very well. It's a time when they were out on the sea and they were fishing. And it says that without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept up over the boat. (laughs) But Jesus was sleeping. (laughs) The storm was so bad that the waves were crashing up over the side and the ship was about to go down and it was rocking back and forth and there Jesus is taking a nap. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. These are experienced fishermen, they know what a bad storm is. He replied, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It says that the storm came upon them without warning. And isn't that just the case so often? Man, if we could look 10 years down the road in our little crystal ball and see that we're going to have a problem with our mortgage, you think we would make different choices? If we could look a year down the road and see that our our children were going to acquire some horrible disease, you think even now we'd start setting money aside to help them? Or even now researching the best doctors that would be right for them? doesn't happen that way, though, does it? Without warning, the storms of life come and they crash against us. And the disciples were afraid. And a lot of you guys are probably afraid, too. When you're in the midst of those situations, a lot of you guys are probably afraid too because that is the natural human reaction. But there Jesus is sleeping. Do you think Jesus is afraid? Do you think God looks at the the problems that we have and he cowers and he says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? God is sleeping. And he wakes up and he says, chaos, uncertainty, anxiety, fear, be still. You have little faith. Why are you afraid? Build your house upon the rock. Trust in the firm foundation of God's love for you and enter into that love relationship with him. Not just doing rote obedience, not just doing religion for the sake of religion, but enter into a love relationship And watch as you fall more in love with God how it begins to form your heart into an obedient person. And you will find that your house, your life will be firmly planted upon the rock. So when those storms come, they will still beat against you. Do not get me wrong. They will still beat against you, but you will have a firm foundation to stand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we put our trust in you this morning. Father, I do not say that lightly. Father, I fully recognize that this is such a hard thing to do. To give up control, Father, to loosen our grip on our life, Father, it's, it's, it's nearly an impossible task. And so, God, I pray that for those who recognize, Father, that, that they need a firm foundation to stand against the storms of life. 
Father, that you would help us loosen our grip. Father, that you would give us a promise of your trustworthiness this morning. Father, you would speak into the hearts of those who are scared this morning because there's a situation in their life that is worrisome right now, Father. They don't know where the next mortgage payment is going to come from. They don't know what's going to happen with the diagnosis that they just received, Father. They don't know what's going to happen, Father. And so I pray that you would be there, Father, that they're in the midst of the storms of this life. God, speak into their life and say, be still. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And Father, not just for today, but for all days, because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And may we just have a constant reminder, Father, that there is an inscription written in stone. God is my refuge. You are my deliverer, Father, and you I will take shelter under the shadow of your wings, Father. Deliver me. Be merciful, Father. And God, as we cry out in the midst of the storm, may you come alongside us and say, be still. I'm here. Amen.